0: I don't know about you, but today, there's an awful lot going around our country and our world. So today, we're going to talk about those issues that are important to you with our guest, Spencer Fernando.
1: A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed, because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together.
0: This is Leaders on the Frontier. I'm very excited to have with me a special guest, Spencer Fernando. Spencer is a very thoughtful columnist and analyst, and he's also with the National Citizens Coalition. Spencer, a warm welcome to you. Good to be here. So Spencer, uh, we're going to cover a lot of topics today, and I would like to talk with a fairly, a uh, fairly hot one, and that has to do with Chinese influence, specifically, the influence that the Communist Party of China has had in, um, frankly, the last several elections uh, on spe- on specific writings and the information that is dripping out through a source is is really quite. Um, gobsmacking as we learn more about the influence that different organizations from the the Communist Party of China has had on influencing those election wins. So do you think this is a story that is going to go away? Do you think it has legs? What do you think, Spencer?
2: Well, you know, all the polls show that this is a story uh, a vast majority of Canadians are paying attention to. I mean, there was a survey, I think two weeks ago, and it showed, I think 71% of the liberal supporters wanted a public inquiry. Seventy-one
0: percent of liberals liberal wow. Yes, an
2: Wow, that's right, and that was, I think, an Angus Reid poll, if I'm not mistaken. And so, I think it's it's a big concern. You know, you've seen public opinion in Canada turn very much against China in the last three or four years. You know, obviously with mm-hmm. COVID, and then the two Michaels, and then just China's increasing belligerence under uh, Xi Jinping. And so, I think what you have is is Justin Trudeau is very out of step with many in his own party, and certainly with the country. You know, he's you know his father was you know very much. Don't know if you could totally call him a communist, but certainly a communist sympathizer, a big mm-hmm. fan of communist China. I mean, Pierre right. L.A. Trudeau was praising communist China right at the time when people were talking about how they had killed millions of people, right? So that's always been kind of his ideology. And so he passed that down to his son, obviously. And, um, you know, Trudeau's kind of kept that going. But he finds himself in a very interesting situation where I think he and the people around him bet that China was just going to become more and more powerful, more and more influential. They felt the U.S. was going to weaken. So they tried to shift Canada more into the orbit of China as opposed to the U.S. And that bet hasn't really paid off. You know, China's got serious demographic and economic problems. Uh, there's a big you know, coalition forming against them really around the world. I mean, you've got Japan and South Korea who are working together. Those two countries don't like each other at all. But they're looking and saying, well, you know what? We're both democracies. China's not. And China's a bigger threat in the long term. And so I think Trudeau finds himself kind of playing catch up. And then I think there's a lot of shady stuff that's happened in the liberal Party. I mean,
0: he's obviously very scared of holding an
2: inquiry. He's desperate not to hold one. Mm-hmm. You
0: know, yeah, they David want to Johnston. change the channel, don't they? They want to mm-hmm. avoid any kind of situation where they can't, frankly, control the questions. When, in fact, this should be transparent and open to build confidence in Canada's electoral system, isn't it?
2: hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at the appointment of David Johnston, that was obviously just a move to,
2: to delay and buy time, right? The liberals are hoping that in two or three months, you know, things will be different. There'll be different stories. Mm-hmm. People will be paying attention. But David Johnston himself, I mean, he, I would say, has an interest in, you know, not finding too much information about China's interference in our elections. I mean, he I think he had daughters who went to university in China or at least members of wow. his family who went to university in China. He has close connections to China. So, the idea that he's an impartial observer, I mean, he's probably one of the worst people you could have picked for this. Doesn't mean yeah. he's a bad guy in other areas, for sure. Yeah. But, you know, for this, you pick someone who's a big fan of China, who has family connections to China, who has family connections to Justin Trudeau. It just looks like the same elitist establishment trying to protect itself rather than actually get information. And so, you know, it's, you know, and Trudeau's, he's ignoring the majority of MPs. You know, they voted, you know, last week uh, for a public inquiry, you know, the majority of them. And he's ignoring that too. So he's—you get the sense that he's scared of something. There's
0: something he doesn't want people to
2: find out about the liberal party in China.
0: So part of the story about this story is kind of the unseen actors behind the scenes dripping out the information. So what's your take on the information? Who's behind this? And 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 frankly, it's, it's fascinating their their strategy in this. It seems like they keep dripping it out. Um, bit by bit in a way that is going to be even more damaging to the government. So obviously, there's a large file on this. Or what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think there's a, basically an internal war within the security establishment, uh, both in, within CSIS itself and within the federal government itself. I mean, you have people in the federal government who obviously see Trudeau as a threat and see that he's not doing enough about China, see him as you know, possibly, you know, completely unreliable as a, as a national leader, you know, someone mm-hmm. who can't be trusted. You know, with wow. state secrets and with all this information. And so, you know, they're releasing this information. As you say, it's, it's clearly very thought out because they understand the media very well. You know, they wait just until attention starts to fade a bit and then boom, another story. Right. Exactly. And So I think just the fact that there are people within the government who are that scared of Justin Trudeau not doing anything about it should be concerning to us. Because he's obviously not taking the kind of action that should be taken. And again, you know, the thing I think people need to look at is it's not just one issue, right? It's not like, okay, here's one story. You know, here's one thing Trudeau said. It's you have to look at the entire trend, you know, Mm -hmm. before he was even prime minister. He said he admired China's basic dictatorship. People said, okay, (laughs) kind of a, a dumb comment, right? People could dismiss it. But everything he's done since then, you know, he let China buy up a bunch of national security companies in Canada, you know. One of them that may need a high tech equipment that many of our NATO allies. use. So why would you let China take that company? You know, he let China buy up large sectors of our economy. He lowered the threshold for foreign takeovers, which benefited Mm -hmm. China, made it easier for them. You know, all the statements he made in favor of China. He he was much more critical of the U.S. often in statements than he was of China. Mm -hmm. Tried to do a free trade deal with China, was talking about an extradition deal. And so just issue after issue, he's tried to move Canada closer to China's orbit. And that's obviously, you know, not what Canadians want, but he's kept trying to do it. And it's only recently where he started to back down, where I think he realizes that the pressure from the U.S. is just going to be so great. The U.S. isn't going to put up with Canada being completely taken over by China. Um, You know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually very similar policies towards China. It's one of the areas where, you know, Joe Biden rebranded a few of Trump's ideas, but very similar and so that's one of the, the few areas in the States where there's bipartisan agreement on confronting China. Exactly. And so to think that Canada could just shift away from the U.S. orbit into China's orbit, it's
0: not going to happen. So your bet is that this story is not going to go away. Is that is that right? Yeah, and I think because
2: it's, you know, I think Canadians had, you know, especially with the two Michaels, but then seeing what China is doing to the Uyghurs as well. I think Canadians just got to the point where you know a critical mass of people said you know what this China's government is acting in ways that are just completely antithetical to our beliefs as Canadians you know Canadians obviously we disagree on a lot of things but most people at least think of themselves as pro-freedom right people would describe that different ways you know Trudeau obviously doesn't have a pro-freedom perspective but most Canadians see themselves as supporters of freedom one way or the other and so the differences between you know canadians of different political stripes and then the differences between canada and china are so much it's it's so vast right and so i think canadians are seeing this and canadians have had concerns i think for a long time I and mean, people see how weak trudeau is on china people see almost every other country seeming to take action against chinese influence and chinese uh, communist influence and trudeau not doing anything and then you have members of the chinese canadian community themselves who are saying look we're getting threatened we're afraid to talk about politics within canada Shouldn't Trudeau be doing something about that? And so I think it's, it's just reached a critical mass of people. And I, I don't think it's going to go away. A lot will depend on, you know, what people like ourselves do to keep it in the public sphere. Uh, the conservatives have to stay on it. I mean, it seems like there's a few conservatives who are implicated in this as well. But, you know, I've seen liberals say, oh, well, there's conservative MPs, uh-huh. possibly, or conservative senators. And I point out to them, well, okay, but the conservatives are still calling for a public inquiry. They're willing to have some bad information about themselves come out to address the issue. And Trudeau uh-huh. obviously is not willing to do that. So I think that's an important contrast. But yeah, I I don't think it's going to go away. And I think clearly people within CSIS are going
0: to make sure it doesn't go away. Exactly. So stay tuned. And this is really, frankly, the tip of the iceberg, isn't it, uh, Spencer? Um, So speaking of the international stage, there's a lot of moving parts going on, one of which is just, frankly, a a lot of these issues beg the question, is is Canada a solid NATO partner? For years, we've um, not really... um, uh, lived up to our NATO agreements in terms of both military spending and capability. Um, how is how are we really viewed at this uh, point in terms of the international stage as a NATO partner?
2: I don't think we're seeing uh, as we're taken too seriously. I think there's some some good things we've done. Uh, you know, I think supporting, you know, giving support to Ukraine is important. I know a lot of people you know, are concerned, understandably, about the cost. But I think the cost of letting Russia win and then Russia having a border with a NATO ally, Poland, where we would be forced to basically go to war with Russia, if Russia attacked mm-hmm. Poland, the cost of of the military buildup that would, would require is so much greater than helping Ukraine win now. So I think it's certainly worth it to help Ukraine at this moment, and and going forward, we'll be paying more later if we don't. um But I think you know, Canada did some good training. We trained a lot of Ukrainian soldiers, which is important. Um, they've provided financial support, which is nice. But I think the deeper problem is we just we don't spend enough in the military. You know, and this is where I think we have a government that just, I don't know whether they're naive or, you know, it's, it's something, you know, more sinister. But there's this attitude you see, you know, and I see people, you know, liberal supporters too on Twitter say, oh, what do we need a military for? Or, you know, Canada can't be, doesn't need to be a military power. And it, I think a lot of people don't really realize that the world is still a very dark and dangerous place quite often. You know, at the end of the day, if you want to protect your country. Um, that means you have to invest in, you know, weapons that are designed to kill other human beings and people Mm -hmm. don't like to talk about, it's not a nice thing, Mm -hmm. but that's what war is. And you can actually dissuade war by being more powerful, right? The whole point is if you look weak to a country like Russia, or you look weak to a country like China, they're going to take advantage of that. And so, yeah, we have to invest in, in weapons. We have to be willing to send people, you know, to protect our country. And sometimes that would mean fighting a war and, and killing people. but. If we don't show that we're prepared to do that, not only does it put us in danger, but our allies will look and say, well, why are we defending you? I mean, look at it from the perspective of the U.S., right? If Canada was attacked, our first move would be basically to beg the U.S. to help us. And I'm sure they would because it's in their interest to defend North America. But how is it fair if we we consider the U.S. an ally and a friend? Mm-hmm. How is it fair that we put all the burden for our own defense on them and then say, oh, well, yeah, you're just supposed to do this because you're an ally? What if the U.S. got involved you know it's some catastrophic war and then someone else attacked them well shouldn't we have the capability to you know defend at least part of north america you think so right and so the last budget and again like you know it's all about priorities i mean trudeau's massively increased spending the recent budget increased the deficit dramatically from the liberal projections and somehow the military isn't benefiting from it and we, i'm sure you saw the story of yeah. how troops in poland mm-hmm. are being forced to pay for their own food and some of them are their families are going into debt so how do you spend so much extra money per year and somehow you don't build up the military in a, in a much more dangerous world. And so I think I, I,
0: I don't see how other NATO countries would take us too seriously. They have no reason to. No, I I think you make a very good point that Canada really needs to up its game as a NATO partner. And and that really relates to our international relationships with so many other people that we rely on and, and in turn um, rely on each other. So speaking of the federal budget, um it is just astounding. I would never believe 10 years ago that we would have a government that spent more money the last, um, uh, frankly, what is it, four years than all prior governments previously. So the, the level of spending is really hard to comprehend. So this last week, we've had that federal budget. What's your summary and, and quick take on that federal budget? Yeah, Well, you know, people have made the point
2: that it seems the liberals are almost scared of balanced budgets. I mean, their own projections, if they just didn't do much, you know, even after all their spending, if they just didn't do that much in this budget, just kept things relatively stable, they'd be, you know, you know, 4 or 5 years away from a balanced budget quite reasonably. And so of course, you know, you know, Chrystia Freeland was saying a lot before the budget of yeah, we're fiscally responsible, blah blah blah. But of course that's not how it went. I think there's a bit of an internal conflict between freeland and trudeau i don't think it'll ever get too public Mm. i think she's kind of it's just a guess but i think she's probably looking for the exits relatively soon you know know, she has a lot of friends in new york city a lot of friends in washington i think she's more uh, at home with the um you know, kind of the elitist international political crowd in the U.S. That's mm-hmm. kind of more her scene. So I think she wants to avoid reputational damage by being associated with Trudeau, you know, going forward. Especially if the U.S. sees Trudeau as, as not trustworthy on China, mm-hmm. then she doesn't want to taint her own reputation. So I think she, she may have intended to have a, a reasonable budget and Trudeau came in and said, no, nope, we're going to do a bunch of spending because Trudeau doesn't. He thinks the balance, budget balances itself, which hasn't happened yet. But overall, it, it just shows that Trudeau, hes just going to keep spending. It's basically an NDP budget. The NDP is, you know, obviously influencing a lot of what the Liberals are doing. Mm-hmm. They don't get anything for it in terms of cabinet seats somehow, but you know, they have some influence in terms of just massive spending. And uh, I think the Liberals—they're—they're they're kind of caught in a, a weird loop economically. They're—they're they're trapped in a way, right? Because the more inflation goes up, the more Canadians struggle and the more canadians get angry at the government understandably, understand exactly and you know then the liberals say okay well we're going to borrow more money and give it to you to help with inflation but of course that makes inflation worse right so they're just caught in this trap and it's ideological because they can't accept that you know sometimes the government needs to actually cut spending the government mm-hmm. needs to step back reduce taxes reduce its rule let the private sector have more influence and that's how you get higher productivity and you start to lower costs and prices but trudeau he, he's too ideological to do that and so mm-hmm. he's so what I've said is none of this is going to change until they're voted out because he's not going to change his approach. He's not going to learn from his mistakes. He's not going to listen to you know people who he disagrees with. He's just going to keep you know barreling forward
0: and the results have not been good so far. This is where I'm also fasting because this last week there was a poll that came out, if memory serves me correctly, from Mangus Reid, pointing out that some sixty percent of Canadians now understand that increased inflation relates directly to all this increased money that is being sprayed across the country. So this is where I'm, um, I'm, I'm wondering, why do you think the government is spending so much money when they are, are they're the primary cause of all this inflation that's happening? And that that's undermining the middle class, like when you're spending bill for food and, and so many other essential items, like filling up your the, the tank for your gas. Uh, for your car is um, in order of magnitude 200, 300 percent more than it was just a few years ago. This is this is a, this is really hitting the middle class hard. So why do you think they're doing this, uh, Spencer?
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, Trudeau's whole, you know, it's his ideological vision is that the government is the solution to every problem. Right. Mm. And it's It's kind of narcissistic for him, too, because he gets credit for it if he goes out and says, I'm giving you some of your money back. Of course, he first took more of it. So it's not really a benefit for people. But I think, you know, as I said, they're, they're just kind of trapped where the, the answer to a lot of these problems is to cut government spending or at least reduce the, the increase in government spending at the very least and reduce the role of government. But he can't bring himself to do that because that would be to admit that, oh, maybe Pierre Poirier was actually right about some things. Maybe the conservatives were right about some mm-hmm. things and he won't do that. And so he's just going to keep it's just going to be it's every you know solution to every problem is to spend more money. And wow. so, again, to get back to the military issue, what's ironic is the one place where really spending money is actually needed is the military, right? That's the one place where spending more money would actually fix some of the problems it has. And that's the one place where he's not going to spend much more money. Everywhere else he's going to spend money, but not in the military. And so, you know, and, you know, unfortunately it does, it does, um, it does convince some voters, you know, there are voters. And I see people on Twitter who are talking, oh, they're glad though, we're getting money from Trudeau, we're getting money from the government, this is great, you know, the, the checks are going out or the direct deposit payments. And I understand it's people, it's nice to get money, obviously, but the government first took more money from you and then gives a little bit of it back. They borrowed a lot of the extra money that they're giving to people, and so that's just going to make things worse. And I think, as you said, it's good that people are starting to make that connection because, you know, we're it's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing, expecting different results.
0: Exactly. Trying to
2: fix inflation by borrowing and spending more money is yeah. not really the best answer.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I think that's, you're, you're putting your finger on a very important debate around how our country going to work. Do you have a federal government that's constantly intruding into provincial jurisdiction? And at Frontier, we would say, well, it's very important to deliver services and control as close to the people as possible. And um, so that kind of federal intrusion is not a good idea. You want to respect as much as possible, not just the provincial level of government, but local government. You want to give people as much control in their lives as possible. So I think this is part of that conflict, is it not at a, at a larger level? And I know that's uh, frankly being challenged at many different levels in the courts.
2: Yeah, I and mean, you'll often see people they'll rate their local representatives the best, and then the ratings get worse and worse the further away someone is, right? So mm-hmm. you know, their, their local city council gets a better rating than their provincial representatives, and their provincial representatives get a better rating than their federal. And I think that's just basic human nature: is you're going to, you're both going to have more influence over the person who's closer to you, and they're probably going to be more in tune with your own perspective and your own issues, issues right? And so, you know, in theory, the system is supposed to make MPs local representatives who are in tune with the people and then hold the government accountable. But it's, it's obviously that's not how it works, right? It's, you know, the, you know the, the prime minister controls liberal MPs and he can punish anyone who steps out of line. We've seen him do that. You know, you just don't sign nomination papers for somebody and they're almost certainly going to lose to the person the party puts forward in their place. And so the system's become very skewed uh, in favor of, you know, top-down federal power Mm -hmm. and then you add trudeau's ideological views which is again you know top down the federal government should control everything we say he's trying to control speech and everything on Mm -hmm. the internet and so it's you know it's it's all these things all at once it's his disrespect for certain industries in certain parts of the country it's his controlling nature it's his personal unpopularity and then it's the fact that things on top of all that are also getting worse ironically he'd be getting away with everything if crime was going down and if the economy was booming he'd be getting away with most of this stuff. People would say, oh, whatever, you know, okay, he's kind of corrupt. You know, he's a control freak, eh, eh, whatever, you know, the economy is doing well. But things are getting worse everywhere in the country.
0: And so he can't really fall back on even any progress or success. Right now, um, we have the National Citizens' Inquiry making its way across the country in different locations. And the Citizens' Inquiry is an attempt to, to listen to witnesses tell their the impacts of the management of COVID-19 on their lives, but also listen thoughtfully to a variety of experts. Uh, it's really quite remarkable. And to try to listen to that kind of story as a way to, to to frankly learn the lessons from COVID-19. And I think frankly, there were a lot of mistakes done. Often it's very hard for people then in office to even fess up to that in a thoughtful way. Um, so my my question to you is: With the National Citizens Inquiry, do you think there's an opportunity to ever see a reality where in Canada we'll have different decision makers learn these lessons and, frankly, ensure that this never happens again? I know that's a big question, but uh, that's a that's a big issue that look is on our radar now. Some three years after this.
2: Yeah, I think it could have an influence on uh, future conservative government, uh, for sure. I think the you know, conservative MPs are probably paying attention to it and would be willing to learn from it, especially because their base demanded that. I mean, you saw them you know, not take too strong a stance while it was happening. And Aaron O'Toole was basically punished first by the party base who pressured MPs and then MPs themselves who, who removed him. Um, so I think they would pay attention. I don't see Justin Trudeau or Jagmeet Singh, unfortunately, paying attention to it. You know, they're too arrogant, you know, Trudeau, I think Trudeau thinks the only mistake he made is probably not being more heavy. handed uh, that's his attitude. He was clearly enjoying the kind of power and you know, the expanded power and authority he had during COVID. He enjoyed that a little too much. And so I think, I think it could have an influence on, um, you know, future conservative government, because if there is another pandemic, even, you know, very bad flu season. Um, some of the same public health authorities may be pushing for some of those measures again and having, you know, a detailed inquiry, people talking about, you know, the mistakes that were made and the damage it did would be effective in pushing back against that. I could see a conservative government utilizing that. So I think it could have quite a lot of influence if we have a conservative government in the
0: future. But right now, I don't see Trudeau willing to listen to that. So this is just hot off the press. We have a decision from the Supreme Court of Canada Uh, saying that um, they will not hear the appeal from the uh, so-called Dr. Brian Day case, where he operates a private clinic in British Columbia in Vancouver called the Canby Clinic. Um, This is a clinic that's been around for a long time, among others in our country, that frankly helps serve Canadians. Uh, It's where people can choose to pay for those services and get better health care. So the Supreme Court elected uh, to um, not hear that appeal, and uh, at Frontier we've done a lot of analysis about uh, healthcare, and and it's it's you know despite having a lot of great people in our healthcare system, it's frankly one of the lowest performing healthcare systems in our world. It's among the most expensive, um, but if you go to France, Germany, Sweden, their systems are remarkably better and uh, better designed to serve people and because they're given a choice where they want to take their money to, to, to get healthcare. Um, So those public goals for healthcare are very important, but the whole design of a kind of a public monopoly is a bad idea. So is this kind of decision going to serve Canadians better in your view? It's, it's kind of a weird ideological, you know, rut we're stuck in as a country where, you know, and I, I
2: talk to people about this all the time, you know, I'll say something like, oh, here's, Here's the problem with their healthcare system. Here's the ranking, right? As you say, we spend more, we get less than comparable countries. And almost every reply will be like, oh, well, we, we're better than America. It's like, you do realize that America and Canada are not the only two countries with healthcare systems. Exactly. Yes. Both countries, ironically, are actually uh, outlier models right the us is an outlier in the lack of public uh, support they have from people in canada is an outlier in our complete you know restriction on, on most private services mm-hmm. and neither one you know the us has its benefits you know people who have good insurance get great health care in the states but a mm-hmm. lot of people get very little health care at all and in canada sure we all technically have access but it's only in theory right do you really have access mm-hmm. if you're waiting you know to the point where it's too late um the other thing that's funny is that well, not funny but you know, you know what i mean you know, our system would look much worse if it wasn't for the U.S. system. The U.S. system takes a lot of pressure off the Canadian system. Like people mm-hmm. are just like, well, I'll just go and pay for it in the U.S. So we would look even worse if not for the U.S. system. But, you know, the key thing is that it's like people don't know that there's a difference between public delivery and universal. You know, exactly. Credit, right? yeah. That's and right. so people think, you know, when someone says, oh, we, we can provide private healthcare services, they think, oh, everyone's going to just pay with their credit card. Well, no, I mean, most of Europe has a mix of public and private hospitals and you go to a private hospital and they say, okay, here, here's how much it is. You give them your government health card and the government gets billed. And so you still have everybody being covered, but you also have private sector competition and innovation. And so they, they tend to get, they, they pay less or if they pay the same amount, they get better service Mm -hmm. than we do. And so I don't know why people are so scared of that kind of system. It's very strange. But as I said before, I think, you know, regardless of the Supreme court decision, um, I think in the long run, it's inevitable that we're going to have more private healthcare. It just has to happen. There's, the public system is obviously crumbling. Uh, you can throw as much money as you want at a system that's broken; it's not going to fix it. Yeah. And so, people will just go elsewhere. People will do stuff under the table. You know, provinces are starting. You see, Ontario is opening it up. People are just going to demand it, and most surveys show that you know Canadians do
0: want it, but do want more private service but the the political class is still obviously
2: scared of talking
0: about it exactly well it's certainly a very interesting story and we've covered a lot of ground both internationally and domestically spencer and i'm so glad that you could join us spencer fernando and where can we find you in terms of your coordinates spencer You can go to uh, spencerfernando.com and uh, nationalcitizens.ca, or you can follow me on Twitter if you want to see some more of my aggressive opinions and (laughs) see the interesting arguments that take place there. That's always a fun place to be. Well, thank you so much for telling us the way you see it, Spencer Fernando. Thank you for joining us, columnists and a friend of Frontier. Thank you. No problem.
1: Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit FCPP.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd
0: love for you to join the conversation.